0: Santa's dropping off way more than you expected this year. Thanks to Xfinity, the whole family can enjoy great coverage and fast, reliable internet speed up to gig, all at a great value. Go online, call 1-800-XFINITY, or visit a store today. Restrictions apply. Actual speeds vary, not guaranteed.
1: Some of the most important work of my life has been trying to oust horrible district attorneys all over the country, and we've talked about that over and over and over again here on The Breakdown district attorneys are like the local CEOs of the justice system. Each city and each county has a district attorney and there are over 2,300 district attorneys in the country. But just about 150 of those district attorneys oversee and control over 50% of all people who are incarcerated. And many of those district attorneys are up for re-election this year, including Kim Worthy, who is a horrible district attorney in Wayne County, Michigan, which is Detroit. But a bad ass, amazing lawyer, civil rights attorney is running for the position of Wayne County prosecutor. That's the district attorney of Detroit. Her name is Victoria Burton Harris, and I had a wonderful chance to interview her She's brilliant. We need her in that position. We need to change the justice system in Detroit from the inside out. So let me introduce you to her and uh, just sit back, listen, and learn. She's brilliant. The the Breakdown. The the, the Breakdown. The, 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 The Breakdown. Everybody, this is Victoria Burton Harris. She is running for District Attorney in Detroit. There they call it County Prosecutor. It's Wayne County. And uh I've noticed Victoria around the country, people don't know county names <laughs> so much, and so even when I tell people about you, I say, "Hey, there's an amazing sister running for District Attorney of Detroit, but locally it's the Wayne County Prosecutor." And uh I've already told you this, but you are so badass, you we believe in you, uh, not just because of anybody can create a great campaign website, but your policies match the life that you've lived as a lawyer, as a litigator, as a person, as even as, in some ways, um, a, a legal activist and organizer. But we're glad to have you here on The Breakdown, and uh, we're proud that you're running for Wayne County Prosecutor. Good to see you.
0: Thank you so much, Sean. I'm honored to be here with you. I'm looking forward to this very robust conversation that I know we're going to have because of uh, how you get behind uh, folks like me who have the heart and the passion to, um, you know, bring true justice to all people, not just folks that this system was designed to bring justice to, but folks who look like you and I, black folks who um, did not always grow up with a silver spoon in their mouths, folks right. who got up with poverty um, and who, you know, by all accounts should have been statistics,
1: Uh,
0: but we're not. And we are using our place of privilege because we do have it, even as Black folks, we can have quote unquote privilege. As as educated
1: professionals, we are now in a place of of privilege where we Mm -hmm. have access to resources and, Mm -hmm. and we have to use it.
0: Mm-hmm. I want to Hamilton Houston said that to be in this skin as a black lawyer, you have one of two options. You can be either a social engineer for justice or you can be a parasite on your community. And so I think mm-hmm. that as a black lawyer, we all have responsibilities.
1: That's right, you know, and your, your origin story, if you will, is important to me because I was just curious where along your journey as an attorney you got the worldview that you got. And I think in a lot of ways it goes all the way back to Flint Mm -hmm. and you were born and raised in Flint. And I just want to know, like, and, and we have now everybody thinks of Flint through the prism of its water problems, but growing up in Flint, Flint was beautiful and difficult at the same time. And like, like any predominantly black city, it's not all pain. There's, There's beauty and lessons there. Talk about growing up in Flint and and there in Michigan.
0: Growing up in Flint, uh, it was a mixture of smaller city version of Detroit, but also very country in a way. Right. Um, so my family is originally from Georgia, and we did the annual trek back home oh, to okay. Georgia every summer. Yeah. Uh, we truly had the, you know, Watson's go to Birmingham story uh-huh. every
1: summer. Which a lot of people it, in Flint did. Like a Yeah, because lot-
0: that's where a lot of folks from the South Ended up after they migrated yep. uh, for jobs in the factories, and yep. my grandfather was one of them. Yep. Um, and my grandmother, my great grandfather, he was one rather. And uh, his daughter, my grandmother, she decided, uh, in high school, I'm done picking cotton in Georgia. Hmm. Cotton season overlapped with the school year, and so oftentimes they couldn't even start school on time because they hadn't right. finished their cotton picking. And wow. my grandmother is feisty, she said, No, I'm not doing this anymore. Yeah, so I'm she went with this. to Florida, yeah, she said, like, I'm done. She went, she she moved to Florida. She took the, uh, the kids that she had at the time. Um, and she was also running from my grandfather who decided that he wanted to be married but do things that unmarried people do. <laughs> right,
1: right. <laughs> and uh, she, was for a new, she was looking for a new life. Yeah, and that yeah. courage, like when you, you know, my wife and I talk about where, where we come from, like that courageous decision that she made, we, who knows where you would be Had she not made that decision generations ago Mm -hmm. to kind of flee for a better personal life, a better professional life, and a new beginning. And like a lot of black folk in the South, she moved to Michigan and, and found a home in Flint.
0: Yeah, she moved to Michigan uh, following her father who uh, had left Georgia and went to uh, Flint to work for Buick City um, Mm. because we were known as, you know, one of the major cities that were, uh, you know, that was pumping out automobiles left and right. And she came here and she stayed. She uh, raised her children on a very small income working uh, in the public school system. Uh, She raised five children on her own. And wow. her children did not know they were poor until they became adults because they did not go for anything. She cooked homemade meals every day, multiple times. Oh, that's times how a day. I grew up. That's she how made I up clothing stuff. for them. Yeah, yeah. Right. They didn't have like store bought clothes. She had to make clothes for all five wow. of those kids. And they were loved. They knew they were loved.
1: Yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and I knew what?
0: I was loved growing up in that same environment. Yeah. Even as an only child, I had a big village uh, because that's what Flint was all about. It was about family and community and we took care of each other.
1: I saw that I saw that your undergraduate degree was in African American studies and m- mine was too and I remember my mother was asking me like what, what are you going to do with that?
0: Oh my god, <laughs> my grandmother said the same thing.
1: <laughs> you know, like I told her I said, "Okay, mom, at that time I was at Morehouse and it was a, it was actually a history it was inside of the history department." But I told her I was like, "Mom, this this degree has shaped how I see the whole world. And my guess is that it did the same thing for you.
0: It did. It did. The first time I was exposed to African American literature, it was either my 11th or 12th grade year in Flint in high school. And I was just like, all in, like, where has this been all my life? Like, I just need to soak it up. So when I went to Ann Arbor for undergrad at Michigan, I thought that I had to uh, major in political science because I knew I wanted to go to law school. But I also knew that I had to explore more about where I came Mm -hmm. from and my people. And the more, you know, that I, uh, you know, really, it was just diving in into the material and the robust conversations that we were having on campus in class, out of class. I said, Oh no, there's no going back. Yeah. This intersectionality of Black folks, mm-hmm. and not just Black folks in America, but our people. Like people think our history starts here in this country, but it starts no, with the not. diaspora. Right. No, absolutely. And that intersectionality of Black folks and the US political system just blew my mind. And I knew that I was right where I needed to be.
1: Well, Sam, I'm glad, you know, your undergraduate education informs so much of how you see the world and the fact that you were kind of rooted in that understanding before you got to law school. I mean, obviously being raised in Flint, but then going through this program caused you to see the systems and structures that exist in the country. And so by the time you got to law school, you already understood the systems and structures that we're fighting against, understood the pros and cons there. But what, what, you know, you said, even when you were in undergrad, you were thinking about going to law school, like, what were you, what were you imagining at that point?
0: At that- time, I just knew I wanted to help people. I didn't know how, I just knew Mm -hmm. that I wanted to serve and I wanted to help people. Growing up, um, my dad, who is not biologically my dad, um, he helped my mom raise me and he would always tell me that it's better to be a servant than to be served. Mm -hmm. So I knew that this was how I wanted to give back to the world and to serve people. Somehow. um, Yeah, somehow, you know, I knew lawyers, you know, helped people. But somewhere along the way, I had it in my head that I was going to be the next Terry Joseph of Soul Food. And I was going to be this dynamic (laughs) black sister that's doing corporate law, but helping her people on the side and on the weekends and in the evenings. And it wasn't until I was um, in my, I think, second or third year of law school. And uh, a woman who was now a U.S. Congresswoman, who at the time was one of our state reps, Rashida Tlaib, mm-hmm. she uh, she came and spoke to one of my classes. I was taking a class called Race in the Law, and she came and she impressed upon me that there are only two sides in this system. There's a right side and a wrong side, and if you are not actively and fully fighting for the right side, you are mm-hmm. inevitably doing the wrong thing for the wrong side. So mm-hmm. there was no put your pinky toe in the water and jump back out and do something else. You are they're all in, or you might as well just stay all out. Right. So, after I met her, it was very clear for me, you know, that corporate work did not align with my values. Um, it was very clear for me that I wanted to do work that I was passionate about, that I could wake up in the morning and like who I look at in the mirror, mm. and that I can sleep good at night knowing that I am making a difference with this degree. And I knew that that had to be criminal law because of what I learned in college about, again, this intersectionality of Black folks and the U.S. political system. Mm -hmm. Uh, This system was not designed to protect Black folks. Uh, The 13th Amendment has very clearly articulated uh, that slavery is to continue uh, in response to crime. And when you look at the U.S. population of less than 14%, but then you can look at um, the jail and prison population of Black folks, and you can see that it makes perfect sense um, that this system is working as it was intended to work and is continuing to feast on the bodies of Black folks. And so I wanted to get within that and work to dismantle it as best as I could. And as a defense attorney, I quickly learned that the toolbox is very small Mm. for us to, you know, uh, fight this gigantic system for people and to protect them from it.
1: Particularly from the outside. Yes. From the outside as a defense attorney, see, I think in law school, and I've had the privilege of speaking at maybe 50 different law schools around the country, and I would ask, and particularly this was in 2014, 2015, 2016, I would ask law students, like, how many of you want to be prosecutors? And the number of law students, particularly law students that would come and hear me speak, I mean, if if it was 200 students in the room, you might get one or two hands. Because students have kind of been programmed to think that if I want to help people and if I really want to make a big difference in this system, uh, being a prosecutor is the, is the antithesis of that. And I think, mm-hmm. I mean, obviously we're turning that tide, but almost all of my friends who, who are attorneys, they are also public defenders or criminal defense attorneys, civil rights attorneys. But eventually you came to understand like, you know what? I, there There's so much I can do from the outside, but if I am inside of the system, that toolbox changes, and mm-hmm. there are a lot of options and opportunities for you to still fight for public safety mm-hmm. you You move to detroit I think to go to Wayne state is that right
0: mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
1: and And so Detroit is your home, and you want to see a safe Detroit, but you understand that the the county prosecutor's office has a lot of things it can do to actually bring about a reimagined definition of public safety. And, mm-hmm. and when did you start thinking, you know what, I'm going I'm to take off my, my, defense, my criminal defense attorney hat and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to actually try to change this thing from the inside out?
0: It was about a year ago, maybe a little bit more at this point. Mm. It was over, a little over a year ago. Um, folks, you know, continued to come and ask me, Victoria, you should think about running. And I laughed initially with a, when a defense attorney mentioned it almost two years ago. And I'm like, girl, please, why would right, I just right. lock people up? Why would, would I, I do that? that? Yeah, why would I do that? Because <laughs> <laughs> all I knew was what you just described uh-huh, was a traditional right. type of prosecutor. One who, you know, again, just exacerbates the problem and feeds body in, bodies into this system. And well, fuels mass incarceration.
1: Well, well to so, you know, to, to interject it, the system is problematic. Mm-hmm. A- and you would have had every right, and some of my favorite attorneys across the country are still in that place to say, Sean, I just can't join that system. It's, mm-hmm. it's that so, yeah, it's so problematic mm-hmm. that I just refuse to be a part of it. But so that was you that was two years me. ago.
0: That was, so, that was me two years ago. That was me a little over a year ago.
1: What, ha- um, what was the light bulb moment?
0: So a girlfriend of mine, um, Amanda Alexander, is a phenomenal social justice warrior here who fights. Uh, tough for criminal justice reform sure. in Detroit, and uh, she was maybe the sixth or seventh person I had. So I, my nose turned into hell. No, stop asking me to several other people. <laughs> Leave
1: me alone and about she, this. I'm not right, doing. like
0: no. I'm I'm okay <laughs> on this. I'm I'm yeah. good. I promise you. I'll just keep my little toolbox and keep working. Um, but she took me out to uh, happy hour and we started having champagne. <laughs> and she said, "Okay." How are you feeling? I'm like, I'm fine, but I'm still not doing it. And so she says, "Big, please, why don't you just expand your thinking? Mm. Why don't you look at progressive prosecutors across the country who started like you as defense attorneys, public defenders, young folks, yeah. um, and they are making a huge difference. Once they got in office and I said, well, what's a progressive prosecutor, Amanda? And she goes, Oh, Vic." So she set me on the right path. I read, um, professor Angela J. Davis, uh, um, books by her. Um, I taught, I spoke with her. Um, I spoke with, um, other progressive prosecutors who were at the time they were candidates. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, I just really, I, I was just all open to learning more about this idea of progressive prosecutors who could actually use their power for good And not bad. Folks who said, I'm not going to criminalize certain groups of folks for engaging in conduct that is, quite frankly, a natural response or reaction to unaddressed trauma, to poverty, to mental health illness that's untreated, undiagnosed, to substance abuse. I'm not going to criminalize children. And I just I was like, whoa you all exist. There's like a, a movement here hmm. for this kind of a new prosecutor. I'm all in. Count me in. Absolutely.
1: Yeah. Well, tell me, you know, you, you, you've kind of alluded there to some of the ideas that's, that drew you to it. But now that you are really in the, the race of your life running for county prosecutor, you have established what I think is one of the best platforms I've ever seen of a candidate. And you've you've really fleshed out the positions. I've read them. I've heard you talk about them. Can you share some of the positions that you're most passionate about that are really kind of fueling you like you're energized to do this? And and what are some of those positions that really fuel you in this race day to day?
0: The biggest one for me is ending our cash bail system. In Michigan, our governor convened a uh, task force on jails and pretrial incarceration. And what we found, uh, and I traveled the state uh, to several of the meetings uh, with the task force because I wanted to hear the testimony live and in person. I wanted to meet the folks who were giving the testimony, and I wanted to hear the research findings from Pew Charitable Trust out of D.C. What we found when they studied our county jails in Michigan were that when folks were released on personal bonds, 87% reappeared in court, 89% did not reoffend. So this idea that you need cash bond to ensure someone's got a flight risk and to ensure that they're not a danger to society. It's just not true. It's not rooted and so in we fact, are, it's not rooted, No, not, not at, at all. Research. No, we are essentially holding people in cages pre-trial when they're presumed to be innocent only because they don't have enough money in their bank account to buy their freedom.
1: It's that, the criminalization of poverty. Itself. It is. And hell, yes. it's not even just the criminalization of poverty. It's the criminalization of being middle class. Mm-hmm. You, you can be a middle class working person mm-hmm. and just not afford the be able to afford the fees that they put on. Like mm-hmm. for a long time, my thought was, and it, it certainly is a huge penalty to anybody in poverty. But it goes beyond that. Like mm-hmm. if you are a working person, and all of a sudden somebody puts a two thousand dollar bail or a ten thousand dollar bail on on something for you you're stuck. And what you and I know is that people can languish in our city and county jails for not just weeks, not just months, but sometimes over a year, sometimes even multiple years, just waiting for trial. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Just, uh, uh, and so people get nervous when they say that we want to end cash bail because they see the bail as a tool for public safety. What's, what's your response to that?
0: That the folks who commit violent crimes, who have the money to pay excessive cash bails, they're back out on the street with you. But mm. the people who are committing low-level nonviolent offenses, such as driving without a license, driving with no insurance, mm. committing crimes of poverty, uh, loitering, trespass due to homelessness, those are the folks that you are keeping locked up in cages because they can't afford $500 bail, $1,000 right. bail. So this idea that if you you want to be safe, you'll require folks to pay a high cash bail. It's actually backward because those folks oftentimes committing more violent offenses, they will be able to pay to get back out on the street with folks that believe that they're safer keeping poor folks in jail on cash bail. And the statistics and the research, they prove that that's just not true.
1: Mm, Yeah, I see it. And I think some of it is people have to actually live through it. And part of what we're working against is police unions and other groups that kind of float out misinformation about what ending cash bail actually does. You know, there aren't just bad policies. And obviously there are bad policies there in Wayne County, in Michigan, but there are also bad actors and Mm -hmm. bad personnel. And that's, that's a difficult conversation that a lot of people don't want to have is that this system that we're fighting to dismantle and change, it didn't build itself. Mm-hmm. People built it and people sustain it. Mm-hmm. And I, I will speak for myself, having fought for many families in Detroit who were treated horribly by the current county attorney, Kim Worthy. Mm -hmm. that while she may be a familiar face uh often I I live for in Atlanta for almost 20 years often we get so used to a familiar face and a familiar name not understanding that they are really propping up the system structures and policies of mass incarceration in every Mm -hmm. way Mm -hmm. and I have seen Kim Worthy do that for damn near my entire adult life Mm -hmm. and it's hard to it's hard to look at Detroit's injustice system or justice system.
0: Injustice all, system, you had yeah, it right.
1: And and all of its failures and faults and not put Kim Worthy right in the middle of it. And mm-hmm. you, you are running right.
0: last year, yep. you you uh, were very close. You became close with the young man named Bryce Lindley, a 10-year-old right. black boy out of Canton, Michigan, which is a, a suburb of Wayne County. Um, he and his mother, Kamishi Lindley, um, you know, they they asked you to please fight on their behalf because Kim Worthy criminalized her child when she charged him with assault after a schoolyard game of dodgeball.
1: They were literally, for people who aren't familiar with that, and we'll try to show some images of, of this case as well. This young boy, beautiful young soul, was playing yes. a game of dodgeball at recess, And someone got injured during dodgeball. And this young boy in elementary school is charged with criminal assault. And it took basically a national campaign Mm -hmm. that humiliated Kim Worthy for her to say, okay, I'm going to try to dial that back. But even then, she then even said, but I reserve the right to to Mm -hmm. reapply these charges if I feel like it. And Mm -hmm. that's when I realized like, this is, this, is a, this is a personnel problem. It's not just the policy. Somebody has to enforce these policies. What's, what are some of the big differences between you and, and your opponent in this race?
0: I know that to effectively fight crime, you can't simply respond to it with punitive measures. Mm. You have to divest from jails and prisons and invest in communities in children in resources for again, mental health issues, substance addiction and abuse. Uh, You have to make sure that you're getting to the root cause of crime. We have continued to try to jail our way out of crime and it has never worked and it never will work. So, you know, my position is that you have to do something you've never done before in order to get something you've never received before. And if you continue to do what, you, what you've always gotten, you. I'm sorry, yeah, if you continue to do what you've always done, you'll get what you've always gotten. Right. So for instance, we have a lot of cases like that, that come through the system that are later dismissed. And we say, whoops, we probably shouldn't have done that. Or whoops, that was a lapse in judgment. Well, you know, we have in Wayne County more wrongful convictions than all other counties combined. Mm -hmm. And our current prosecutor thinks that uh, fixing it through the conviction integrity unit will just solve the problem in and of itself. No, we have a conviction integrity unit that's two and a half years old. We've brought home about 19 or 20 folks through the unit, but that won't fix the problem. You fix the problem on the front end by bringing them in, right? Like you don't just continue to bring innocent people or the wrong people in and then say, Wait, give me credit because I'm going to fix it on the back end. No, ma'am. It's the problems we, you
1: caused. Right.
0: Exactly. You should be cleaning them up. Right. You should also be ensuring that you're not bringing in the wrong people into this system. For instance, Wayne County is only 40 percent black. Yet the majority of the Wayne County population at 70 percent is black. That's a problem, and that's a problem that's happening under a Black woman as the county prosecutor. So we need pro- we need po- policies in that office so that we are not doing what she's doing, which is rubber stamping warrants, and we charge first, investigate later, if at all. We need to slow down, make sure we're bringing in the right folks, and then if at all possible, divert as many folks out of this system as possible, because if, until you get to the root causes of the issue, you're just continuing to put a Band-Aid on it, you actually are exacerbating the problem, when you relegate folks to the bottom of society, when you give them criminal convictions that don't allow them to take care of themselves and their families.
1: How we do you divert folks... those people out, Victoria? what, what is the, How do you do that?
0: You, one, don't bring so many people in. You don't criminalize sex work. You don't criminalize small-time petty drug use. Uh, Research has shown over and over again that mental health issues and illnesses, as well as uh, drug addiction and substance abuse, those are mental health crises. That's not a criminal justice issue. So when you bring those folks into the system and you choose to send them to jail or prison instead of diverting them out to get the help and the resources they need in the hands of community partners, you are just, again, exacerbating the problem.
1: Victoria, I know we've got to run, but I I want people to learn more about you. Uh, If people want to chip in, if they want to volunteer, where can they go online and and tell us uh, where people can go to also find you on social media as well?
0: Thanks. Uh, Victoria2020.org is my website. You can find me on Twitter. My handle is VBH, the number four, prosecutor. Instagram, the same thing, VBH, the number four, prosecutor. And you can find our Facebook page at facebook.com forward slash Victoria for prosecutor.
1: Well, we are rooting for you in every way. I am sorry that I am not a resident of Wayne County to be able to cast my vote. (laughs) But when can people in Wayne County uh, vote for you? And is there early voting now that they they can cast their vote?
0: Yes, you can uh, vote now. You are still able to request an absentee ballot either online by mail or you can go into your clerk's office and request an absentee ballot. Um, You can drop it back off in the mailbox or in a uh, drop box at your county clerk's office, or you can vote in person on August 4th. And please, no matter how you vote, just make sure you vote.
1: Absolutely. Vote. And well, you know, we want people to vote smart and, and but yes. we definitely want people to show up and vote and so Victoria it was great talking with you and uh, it was care. good to see you we're rooting for you in every way thank you for, for running such a great race keep on pushing I know what is that is that 14 days left
0: 14 days from today
1: wow so <laughs> yeah let's keep on pushing take yeah. care good to see you Victoria
0: take, you too. take care thank All you bye bye It's the pathway
1: to freedom, to the stop Hey everybody, if you love the Breakdown Podcast, I don't know if you knew this, but we have two other amazing podcasts that I would argue might be even better than the Breakdown. Right now, if you go to your favorite podcast player, you can search for Sick Empire which is our podcast about the impact of the coronavirus pandemic in New York. Or you can go to my brand new podcast with my wife, Ray, called Married to the Movement, where we just tell our story, not just about how we met each other and fell in love, but what it means to lead and be married together in this movement for civil rights and human rights. So check out Sick Empire, check out Married to the Movement, leave great reviews, subscribe, and let us know what you think. Check them out.
0: Break it down. Ooh.
1: break, it down.